0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel,
1: and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Here we established masses and altars, there, cloisters and brotherhoods. Our blind guides did nothing less than lose sight of God's Word, separated it from good works, and instead of these, set up other works everywhere.
2: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a Martin Luther sermon. That's right. It, it, Reformation Day is coming up here, Troy. It is, it is mere days away. How are you doing?
0: <laughs> I'm doing well. Every year, Joel, we put out a uh, Martin Luther sermon right before the Thursday before October 31st, just as a celebration and reminder of... Reformation Day, the day that Martin Luther hammered those 95 theses on that uh, wall. And I know some people are already thinking, hey, you know, historically, maybe he didn't hammer it on there. And maybe historically, I don't want to hear it. Okay, the story is best (laughs) known as he did it while hammering it, and everyone in the room was going like that. That's, that's how that's how I enjoy the story, even if I know it may not always be true. And so this year, we're doing it again. We're hitting Martin Luther, and I think this is going to be—it's uh, going to be a good sermon, a very good one, by our friend Brian Wolf Mueller, who does just has a great voice for reading sermons and loves does, to do Martin yeah. Luther for us. Um, and I think also that this—this this, what we're going to walk through with Martin Luther is something that everyone kind of knows, but I think people kind of forget about this aspect of the story as well. Um, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. I'm excited to get. I, I always enjoy talking about Luther, especially with you, Troy. It's you know, it's fun just to to chat about. Uh, these people from the past. I think of uh, the, there was just kind of a blooper, a behind the scenes snippet for our audience. There was one time Troy and I were talking about Luther on a podcast, one one of one of our episodes, and for some reason we got tongue tied, and instead of saying ninety five theses, we were oh saying ninety nine theses, and we did <laughs> it like like nine times. The ninety nine theses. I don't know why. I don't know how we got it in our head, and we, of course we didn't realize it until after the fact, and. I edit these episodes and i painstakingly had to go back through and like dub over each 99 and, and turn it into a 95 uh and the listener ideally was never the wiser never knew never knew that we almost had an onslaught of hate mail that was headed our way uh oh if if the, if the tragedy
0: wasn't averted but
2: we get we get numbers mixed up sometimes <laughs>
0: <laughs> I forgot about that. That was quite a that was quite a mess. Thesis. I don't know how we did that. The night and you know that <laughs> some people forget the other four. And that's the problem.
2: Yeah, <laughs> there were four The ninety
0: five are famous, but there were four extras, and I guess we added on. We wanted Before to read either. a Ooh, Apple Podcast. We got a five review. Stars that came in. We try to read these when we remember to, and when they come in. And we had one that came in from Mountain Badger. Gave us five stars. Said thanks be to God for podcasts like this. Freely, freely, I have received education and inspiration. Freely, freely, I need to give. Unfortunately, silver and gold, have I not? Well, Mountain Bouger, very, very poetic of you. We do appreciate yeah. you giving... Uh, what you did have, which was a five star review, those go a long way, and we do they do help out. We do appreciate them. We do like silver and gold as well, but we'll take the five star review.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mountain Badger, and everyone else who uh, who leaves a uh, written review on iTunes. It really does help our show uh, in the analytics there in the in the algorithm. Okay, Martin Luther, uh, this man born in 1483 in Germany, uh, who at the time was known as the Holy Empire. And he would die in 1546. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk in the Catholic Church. And after wrestling for years with his feelings of forgiveness, you know, are his sins forgiven? At the time, I don't think it's a controversial uh, uh, comment to say the Catholic Church was particularly corrupt and particularly focused on works-based salvation. You know, the indulgences were being pushed really, really hard. uh, And Luther... You know, while going through his studies, while going, particularly reading through the book of Romans, he realized that salvation is through faith alone. And, uh, you know, it started this awakening in the way that he viewed the Catholic Church, and it led him to challenge it. And famously, he hung uh, 95 theses on the door of the church, and on October 31st, 1517. And this began the Protestant Reformation, or uh, sometimes it's referred to as the Great Reformation, uh, which was, you know, the church beginning to break away from the Catholic Church. And this is, uh, I'm sure, you know, it's it's simplification. Uh, There are many parts of this that play out in many different ways. And in previous episodes, we've analyzed different aspects of what this Reformation looked like. Last year we talked about the Peasants' Revolt, which I found particularly fascinating. Which was a, you know, it, it you have all these other revolts that are springing up around the chaos that Martin Luther inadvertently has introduced into the world. One of those being this peasant revolts that killed hundreds of thousands of people. It it was awful, you know. There, there's there's so much that was going around how, how the church was affecting the world during the mid 1500s. Here, uh, Troy, we're going to talk this episode more about like, what was it like to be a person in the early 1500s in an era where the Catholic Church controlled everything? You know, what what was Martin Luther breaking away from?
0: Yeah, we have talked about Luther in different ways. We've done several episodes on Martin Luther. We've in, we've interviewed uh, Brian Wolfman, who is an expert on Martin Luther. So if you enjoy the subject of Martin Luther and you want to hear some of the controversies, go check out all the episodes. They're all very good. But this episode, we wanted to really look at what kind of a power structure he was up against. The Catholic Church at the time was the only religion, although some people may have been Jewish or they may have been, you know, pagan or something. They were the minority and they were often persecuted. Atheism, deism, those kind of things were not acceptable. Even if you lived in a place like Italy where it was very obvious your family may be a was living a more um, inappropriate lifestyle, you were still Catholic. Your name was still going to be Catholic. You were still showing up to church on Sunday. Even if, you know, Monday through Saturday you did what you pleased, the Catholic church had your Sunday. And you may say, I already kind of know all this. I've heard of this stuff before. But I think it's impossible to understand how big this was. I I live in a country where there is a religion in control of the country, and the effect of that one religion uh, being in control is impossible to underestimate how much this one religion is able to influence the rest of the people and the rest of the country. But imagine a country that really takes it seriously, somewhere like Saudi Arabia. Can you go to a Saudi Arabia and start insulting the Quran, or can you start insulting the religious leaders? And, of course, the answer is no. We all know that if you were to show up in the middle of Saudi Arabia and start insulting the religious leaders, uh, you would be in danger for your life. Very likely you would die. Yeah, when we think of Luther, I think we forget that that is really a much more comparable scenario to what Europe looked like. He was up against the Catholic Church at the time. The Catholic Church had the same levels of power of, uh, that, that by far that Islam would have had in any Middle Eastern country.
2: Yeah, so uh, imagine imagine you're an 18-year-old, right? In the years 1,500, what does life look like for you? So when you were born, uh, your parents would have had to pay money to the Catholic Church to have you christened, and if you weren't christened, then you weren't uh, going to go to heaven. When you married, you, you had to pay another fee to the Catholic Church for them to recognize the marriage. When you died, you had to pay another fee, <laughs> or I guess your family, you, you you had to pay a fee to the Catholic Church to ensure your soul was buried properly and that you were buried on holy ground. And if you weren't, then you, then you wouldn't be saved. And so they're holding the soul hostage, you know, for, uh in many cases, what looks like, you know, pretty clear ex- extortion of, of money. And you were expected to be involved in the church. You're expected to give in the church. You're expected to give to uh coffers each week and volunteer in the church each week to, to help with the upkeep. Uh, so your life was in service to the church your entire life.
0: I mean, just with all the money they're collecting, financially, they're that powerful. You know, 10% of everything you make goes to the Catholic Church. And uh, you can't cheat them because they would say, look, God is all-seeing, God is all-knowing. He'll know. Not to mention he's getting volunteer time out of you. Not to mention you're supposed to put money in your coffers for special holidays. And this is before we even get to the infamous selling of indulgences. I mean, we talk about Luther standing up to the indulgences, and that's, of course, good that he did, but even if, we, if there were never any indulgences, life would have been pretty hard and the Catholic Church was taking pennies from you every which way they could. And there's also the fact that the average Christian was supposed to make pretty regular pilgrimages to different holy sites throughout Europe to get more forgiveness of sins, bowing and performing works to pay penitence. but also you had to pay penitence, and you would put in money in the coffers at each of these different holy sites that you would find around Europe as well. Rich families were not exempted. I don't know if you're rich. I could probably get through it, but not really, because you would end up having to pay your children and pay bribes to the church to get your children good bishop positions. This would ensure that each member of your family went to heaven, but this would also be good for business, having one of them to kind of oversee things. But that also allowed the Catholic Church to have a hand inside of pretty much every business and every family and every movement of wealth. Not uncommon for young children, in fact, to be priests over an area. Infamously, on one of our episodes of John Calvin, we talked about how nearby there was a four-year-old who was a priest, and you can imagine how good your spiritual priest was if they were a toddler. And then because you couldn't marry, but had to turn over what you owned uh, after you die, a lot of these priests would end up inheriting a large part, or the church would end up inheriting land and money through these different priests who died and had to give their inheritance over to the church. And to all of this, the Catholic priests also had access to the kings. More than one occasion has kings going to Rome to grovel for forgiveness because the Pope had recommended they do something and they didn't do it. And then, of course, there's the Pope as well, a man who literally speaks the words of God and decides things as he pleases. Not only does the the Catholic Church have a voice speaking for God himself, but they can deny you access to the afterlife. But even if you decide to speak against them anyway, say, I don't think you can harm me, They can also end your physical life by having you burned at the stake. They can even do this while promising to guarantee you safe passage and then break their word, and there's no consequences to them, as happened to John Huss, who famously was promised safety before he was trialed and killed. I think I I just wanted to lay it all out there because I think sometimes we forget the Catholic Church was a very wealthy, powerful, influential uh, system and institution to go up to them, go up against them, you know, was insane. We did, did anybody who did, they didn't have the internet to communicate. They didn't have messenger. They didn't have phones. They had no way to get their messages across. No way to get to help. I, it was it was insane to think of challenging uh, this institution at the time that they did.
2: Yeah, and I think it's interesting. It it goes beyond just money and power as well. I mean, on a systematic level, the way that they had control over everything, all the greatest scholars were trained in schools and colleges that were Catholic, right? So all of the intellectuals, all the most intelligent people are paid uh, to not question the Catholic Church. And if they start raising objections, not only can they lose their salaries and their positions, but... Uh, they can have all of their teachings and writings burned, they can they themselves be excommunicated from the church. And at the same time, the Catholic Church during this era is creating some of the most magnificent works of art known to history. They're doing all these great things as well, which, uh, you know, not only are they ruling with fear, but they're also ruling with beauty and philosophy at the same time as well. It it is a submersed facet of what that culture was at that time. All of your your theological leaders were Catholic. You know, look, if if you lived in this era, you're looking up to St. Augustine, you're looking up to Gregory the Great, you're looking up to Basil. Everything that's not Greek philosophy is coming from the Catholic Church. It came came out from Catholics. And this is also a unifying church, right? Everything's unified under the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church that is uniting people against the Muslim empires, which are invading European lands and harming your people, right? So it's it's the side that is the adversary towards the people that are trying to kill you. It, so there's multiple layers to it.
0: Yeah, this is the world that Luther challenges with his writings. I think it's easy to forget how all encompassing and powerful this Catholic Church was. We view, we view the world through the Catholic Church of today, and it's not to say the Catholic Church of today doesn't have money or doesn't have you know power. But it was a completely different beast in those days, in the early 1500s. Every aspect of life in Europe would have been influenced. They had unbelievable amounts of wealth, unbelievable amounts of legal power, political power, intellectual power. So not to mention the spiritual influence over the people that they would have had, too. I mean, how many people might have been tempted to read a book by Martin Luther, but they were afraid they would go to hell if they did? All of those things are working against you. Don't forget, they had just discovered the new world. While Europe is beginning to challenge the Catholic control, the Catholic Church is getting replenished with untold amounts of money and gold and silver from the new world As Spain and Portugal, solidly Catholic empires, are leading the way on this new frontier of power, control, and wealth. And the price of failing, if you are a Martin Lutheran, if you fail, we'll look over at Spain and Portugal and see what they're doing in terms of inquisition in Spain and the new world. If the Protestants failed, that is a high price of torture and death that they will see for challenging Catholic control, and they know that. This is what makes Martin Luther and what he did all the more surprising. People like to focus on Martin Luther's faults. He had faults, he was anti-Semitic, and this led to problems for centuries in Germany. He always did not write kindly of others. He was famously short-tempered. I'm not painting over those and saying he didn't have flaws, but how did Luther challenge and lead this reformation that completely rewrote the power of Europe and, and changed the way we all view church forever? He did it through writing. He didn't lead armies. You know, some of his followers did, but he didn't. He didn't command kings what to do. Some of his followers did, but he didn't. He did it through writing books, through commentaries, through articles, through published works. He wrote and he worked with others and he pointed people to what he believed was the truth. Yeah, and most
2: importantly... He translated the Bible into the common tongue for everyone to, to speak. But up until this point, the, everything was in Latin, right? When, they, when, they, when you went to church and the, the priests spoke, they were telling you out of Latin books. And so you had to take it on their word that, that they're, they're telling you what the Bible says. And so Luther, simply him just writing it and translating it into the language that people actually spoke during that era was huge. Famously, he translated the New Testament while he was hiding in a castle over a three-month period. And it's this drive, this faithfulness to get the Word of God into people's hands. That's what I I think is the biggest factor and what ended up changing everything. Because when people can read the Bible for themselves, when they see the things that Luther was saying were true and were in the Bible, you know, when you can point to scriptures and say that this is what the Bible actually preaches— that's when he got people to join him. That's when people started to rally behind him. And Luther knows this himself. He said that all he wanted to do was faithfully point people to the word of God and to let it do the work it was going to do.
0: At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with... This is what ended up changing the world. A man standing for the Word of God. Armies, national power, princes, all the money of Europe, none of it was a match for faithful followers of God who point people to His Word. I think there's a great application for this today. People see the world in a state of chaos. They may feel the powerful are against them. They may feel like they don't have enough money to do the ministry they need. There may be all these different things working against them. And this may all be true, but our hope Our best hope is to get the the Word of God faithfully preached into the hands of as many people as possible. Luther realized that and it changed the entire world 500 years ago for the better. Now I think that is what we need to go and do as well. Now go and listen as Luther expounds on a passage from Matthew chapter 9.
1: First, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. So he, Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Martin Luther's Sermon. The theme of this gospel is the great and important article of faith called the forgiveness of sins, which when rightly understood makes an honest Christian and gives eternal life. Therefore, it is necessary in the Christian church to teach this article diligently and unceasingly so that we may learn to understand it clearly and distinctly. For this is the one great and difficult art of a Christian where he will have enough to learn as long as he lives so that he need not look for anything new, higher, or better. But that we may rightly understand this, we must thoroughly know how to distinguish two powers or kinds of piety one here upon earth, which God has also ordained and included under the second table of the Ten Commandments. This is called the righteousness of the world or of man and serves to the end that we might live together on earth and enjoy the gifts God has given us. For it is his wish that his present life be kept under the proper restraint and passed in peace, quiet, and harmony, each one attending to his own affairs and not interfering with the business property or person of another. For this reason, God has also added a special blessing, Leviticus 18.5, which if a man do, he shall live in them. That is, whosoever upon earth is honest in the sight of all men shall enjoy life. It shall be well with him, and he shall live long. But if, on the other hand, man is unwilling to do this, he has ordained that the sword, the gallows, the rack, fire, water, and the like be used, with which to restrain and check those who will not be pious— Where such punishment is not administered, the whole country becomes so utterly bad and perverted that the officers of the law can no longer restrain God sends pestilence, famine, war, and other terrible plagues in order to subvert the land and destroy the wicked, as has happened to the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, and others. From this we may learn his will, namely, that such piety be exercised and maintained, and know that he will provide what is necessary. But if such piety is not practiced, then he will in turn take away and destroy everything. This is in short the sense and the whole substance of this piety on earth. But it is further necessary to urge it and to admonish people that every man diligently, zealously, and voluntarily exercise himself in it, that he be not driven to it by force and punishment. This admonition consists in setting forth God's commandments and in applying them to every situation of life on earth, as God is ordered and highly honored. We should find pleasure in them and heartily do what is required in the different spheres of life. When God says, Honor thy father and thy mother, every child, man-servant, maid-servant, citizen, and the like, should receive the word with joy and have no greater treasure on earth and not imagine if he do this he is already halfway or altogether in paradise. This should not be solely done that every heart may be assured without a doubt and say, Sorry, And this should be solely done, that every heart may be assured without a doubt and say, Now I know that such work, life, or position is right and proper, and is assuredly well-pleasing to God. For I have his word and command, a a sure witness, which never deceives or fails me. For do not let this be the least grace upon earth, when you have come to this decision in your heart and your conscience rests upon it. We owe this assurance to the blessed gospel alone, in which we should delight and in we, and which we must reverence, even if we receive no other benefit or use it, use from it than this, that it quiets our conscience and positively teaches us how to live and in what relation we stand to God. In what error and blindness we were aforetime, when not even a spark of such teaching enlightened us, and we allowed ourselves to be led in the name of the devil by the whims of every lying preacher, we tried all kinds of works, rather... "'Ran hither and thither, expended and wasted our energies, money, and property. "'Here we established masses and altars, there cloisters and brotherhoods, "'and everyone was groping for the way in which he might serve God. "'Yet no one found it, but all remained in darkness. "'For there was no God who might say, "'This is pleasing to me, this I have commanded, etc. "'Yes, our blind guides did nothing less than lose sight of God's word.' separated it from good works, and instead of these, set up other works everywhere. In addition to this, they discarded and despised the positions in life which God had appointed, as though he knew no better nor even as well as we how to manage his affairs. Therefore, we must constantly take heed to inculcate this word of God, which does not burden us with any special great and difficult work, but refers us to the condition in which we live that we look for nothing else but that with a cheerful heart remain satisfied in it, and be assured that by such work more is accomplished than if one had established all the cloisters and kept to all the orders, although it be the most insignificant domestic work. For hitherto we have been woefully deceived by the fine luster and pomp of works, hoods, bald pates, coarse apparels, by fasts, wakes, pious looks, playing the devotee, and going around barefoot. Our foolishness consists in laying too much stress upon the show of works, and when these do not glitter as something extraordinary, we regard them as no value. And Poor fools that we are, we do not see that God has attached and bound this precious treasure, namely his word, to such common works as filial obedience, external, domestic, or civil affairs, so as to include them in his order and command which he wishes us to accept the same as though he himself had appeared from heaven. What would you do if Christ himself with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you in your home to sweep your house and to wash the pans and kettles? How happy you would feel and would not know how to act for joy, not for the work's sake, but that you knew that thereby you were serving him who is greater than heaven and earth. If we would only consider this, and by the power of the word, Look beyond us and think that it is not man but God in heaven who wishes and commands these things. We would run full speed and in a most faithful and diligent manner rather do these common insignificant works as they are regarded than any others. There is no other reason why this is not done than the simple fact that the works are separated from the word and God's command is not regarded nor respected. We move along in a blind, drowsy manner and think the doing of the works is all sufficient. Because we regard these works as insignificant, we stare and look around for others, become indolent and fretful, do nothing in love, faithfulness, and obedience, have no scruples on account of our our negligence, are faithless to our fellow man, injure or vex them, and thus heap upon ourselves all manner of misery, wrath, and misfortune. This, then, is one part of our discourse, that this external righteousness be urged both in admonitions and in threatenings, and not be considered as of no importance, for whosoever despises it despises God and his word. Therefore, Let every man look to himself, what he is or what he has to do and what God demands of him, whether it be to rule, to command and order, or on the contrary, to obey, serve and labor, that he may attend to the duties of his office with all faithfulness for God's sake. Let him be assured that God has more respect for such faithfulness than for all the work and piety of the monks who never yet have attained to this outward righteousness, nor are they able to extol all their works and doings as heartily as a child or servant girl performing their duties according to God's command. Oh, what a blessed world we would have if people believed this and every man remained at his post, always keeping in mind God's will and command then there would shower from heaven all kinds of blessings and gifts instead of the many vexations and heartaches which we now have, are looking for, and deserve. Above this external piety, though, there is another, which does not belong to this temporal life on earth, but which avails only before God and which leads us to life beyond and keeps us in it. The former piety consists in works which this present life requires to be done among men, whether they be our superiors or inferiors, our neighbors or our kindred, it has its reward here upon earth. Also, it ends with this life, and they who do not practice it shorten their days. But this latter piety moves and soars far above everything that is upon earth and has nothing to do with works. For how can it have works? Since all that this body can perform and that is called works is already included in the former piety, this latter piety is now called the grace of God or the forgiveness of sins of which Christ speaks in this and other gospels and which is not an earthly but heavenly righteousness. It does not come of our work and ability, but is the work and gift of God. For that human piety may well shield us against punishment and the hangman and permit us to enjoy temporal life, but it cannot attain for us God's grace and the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, even though we may have this external piety, we must nevertheless have a much higher one, which alone avails before God, frees us from sin and an evil conscience and leads us out of death into eternal life. This is, furthermore, the only part or article and doctrine, by believing which, we become and are called Christians, and which separates and divorces us from all other saints on earth, for they all have a different foundation and nature of their saintliness, particular exercises and rigorous life. It separates us from the works of those holding positions and offices approved by the Word of God which are indeed much higher and better than all the self-chosen ecclesiasticism of the monks. These also constitute a holy calling so that they are called pious and deserve praise of all men because they do their duty, but all this makes no one a Christian. He alone is a Christian who receives this article, the forgiveness of sin, in faith and is assured that he is in the kingdom of grace in which Christ protects him and daily forgives him his sins. But he who looks for something else, or wishes to deal otherwise with God, must know that he is no Christian, but is rejected and condemned by God. For this reason, the greatest skill and intelligence is needed to grasp and understand this righteousness, and in our hearts and before God, rightly to distinguish it from the above-mentioned outward righteousness. For this is, as has been said, the skill and wisdom of the Christian, but it is so high and great that even, all the be- uh, that even all the beloved apostles could not speak enough of it, and yet it meets the painful misfortune that no art is mastered as soon as this. There is no greater theme for a preacher than the grace of God and the forgiveness of sin. Yet we are such wicked people that when we have once heard or read it, we think we know it are immediately masters and doctors, keep looking for something greater, as though we had done everything, and thus we made new factions and divisions. I have now been teaching and studying this subject with all diligence for many years, more than any one of those who imagine they know it all, in preaching, writing, and reading, yet I cannot boast of having mastered it, and am glad that I still remain a pupil with those who are just beginning to learn." For this reason I must admonish and warn all such as want to be Christians both teachers and pupils that they guard themselves against such shameful delusion and surfeit and understand that this subject is most difficult and the greatest art that can be found upon earth so that even Paul had to confess and say 2 Corinthians 9:15 that it was an is an unspeakable gift that is one which cannot be described among men with words so that they may regard it as highly and dearly as it really is in itself. The reason for this is that man's understanding cannot get beyond this external piety of works and cannot comprehend the righteousness of faith. But the greater and more skillful this understanding is, the more it confines itself to works and rests upon them. It is not possible for man in times of temptation and distress, when his conscience smites him, to cease from groping around for works on which to stand and rest. Then we seek and enumerate the many good deeds which we would like to do or have done, and because we find none, the heart begins to doubt and despair. This weakness adheres so firmly to our nature That even those who have faith and recognize the grace of God or the forgiveness of sins cannot overcome it with all their efforts and exertions and must daily contend against it. In short, it is entirely beyond human knowledge and understanding, ability and power to ascend above this earthly righteousness and to transfer oneself into this article of faith. And although one hears much about it and is conversant with it, there continues nevertheless the old delusion and inborn corruption, which would bring its own works before God and make them the foundation of salvation. Such is the case, I say, with those who are Christians and fight against this work's righteousness. Others, critics and inexperienced souls, are even lost in it. Therefore, this doctrine... That our piety before God consists entirely in the forgiveness of sins must be rightly comprehended and firmly maintained. We must, therefore, get beyond ourselves and ascend higher than our reason, which keeps us in conflict with ourselves and which reminds us both of sin and good works. We must soar so high as to see neither sin nor good works, but be rooted and grounded in this article. And see and know nothing besides. Therefore, let grace or forgiveness be pitted not only against sin, but also against good works, and let all human righteousness and holiness be excluded. Thus, there are in man two conflicting powers. "'Externally in this life he is to be pious, "'do good works and the like. "'But if he aims beyond this life "'and wishes to deal with God, "'he must know that here neither his sins "'nor his piety avails anything. "'And though he may feel the sins "'which disturb his conscience, "'and although the law demands good works, "'he will not listen nor give heed to them, "'but will boldly reply, "'If I have sin, Christ is forgiven. "'Yea, I am seated on a throne.' to which sin cannot attain. Therefore, we are to regard the kingdom of Christ as a large, beautiful ark or vault which is everywhere over us and covers and protects us against the wrath of God. Yea, as a great extended firmament, which pure grace and forgiveness illuminate and so fill the world and all things that all sin will hardly appear as a spark in comparison with the great extended sea of light. And although sin may oppress, it cannot injure but must disappear and vanish before grace. They who understand this may well be called masters, but we will all have to humble ourselves and not be ashamed to keep on learning this lesson as long as we live, for wherever our nature succeeds in fighting sin, it tries to make an unbearable burden of it. Satan fans the spark and blows up a great fire which fills heaven and earth. Here the leaf must be turned and we must firmly conclude, if if the sin were ever so great or burdensome, this article of faith is nevertheless much higher, wider, and greater, which has been recommended and established not by man's wisdom, but by him who has comprehended heaven and earth and holds them in the hollow of his hand. Isaiah 40.12. My sin and piety must remain here on earth as far as they concern my life and conduct. But in heaven above, I have another treasure greater than either of these. There Christ is seated and holds me in his arms, holds me, covers me with his wings and overshadows me with his grace. You may say, how is this? Since I daily feel sin and my conscience condemns me and threatens me with God's wrath, I answer, for this reason, I say, one must understand that the righteousness of a Christian is nothing that can be named or imagined but the forgiveness of sin. That is, it is a kingdom of power which deals only with sin and with such abundant grace as takes away all wrath. It is called the forgiveness of sin for the reason that we are truly sinners before God. Yes, everything in us is sin, even though we may have all human righteousness. For where God speaks of sin, there must be real and great sin. So also, forgiveness is no jest, but real earnestness. When you, therefore, consider this article, you have both. Sin takes away all your holiness, no matter how pious you are on earth. Again, forgiveness takes away all sin and wrath. Therefore, your sin cannot cast you into hell, nor can your piety elevate you into heaven. Therefore, when the devil disturbs your conscience and tries to bring despair to your heart by saying, Have you not learned that one must be pious? Then answer courageously and say, Yes, you are right. I am a sinner that I have known before. For this article called The Forgiveness of Sins has taught me this long ago. I am to be pious and do what I can before the world. But before God, I am willing to be a sinner and to be called nothing else, that this article may remain true, else there would not be forgiveness or grace. But it must needs be called a crown of righteousness and of merits. Therefore, although I feel nothing but many and great sins, yet they are no longer sins. For I have for them a precious panacea and drug which takes away the power and poison of sin and wholly destroys it. It is this word, forgiveness, before which sin disappears like stubble before the fire. Without it, no work, suffering, or martyrdom avails against the smallest sin, for without forgiveness, sin is and remains pure sin, which condemns us. Therefore, Only confess this article heartily and boldly and say, Before the world I may be pious and do everything that is required, but before God it is only sin, according to this article. Therefore I am a sinner, but a sinner who now has forgiveness and who sits at the throne where grace rules supreme, Psalm 116. If this were not so, I would be a sinner like Judas, who saw only a sin but no forgiveness. But Christians, no matter how much sin they feel in themselves, in that word forgiveness, see much more abundant grace presented to them and poured out over them. Thus learn to magnify this article and spread it as far as Christ reaches and rules, that you may elevate it far above everything in heaven and on earth, For as the word soars over all this, so must also faith, which comprehends the word and keeps the heart steadfast in it, overcome sin, conscience, death, and the devil. Consider now what kind of a person, a Christian is, who lords it over death and the devil, and before all, and before whom all sin is as a withered leaf. Now, examine yourself and see how far you have learned this lesson and whether it is such an insignificant and easy matter as some inexperienced souls think. For if you have learned and believed it, all misfortune, death, and the devil will be as nothing. But, since you are still so vexed with sin, and since you are still frightened and in despair on account of death, hell, and God's judgment, humble yourself, give honor to the word, and confess that you have never yet understood this matter. In short, let every man examine his own heart, and he will find a false Christian who imagines that he knows all about this subject before he has learned the first principles of it. The words are soon heard, read, and repeated, but to carry out the principle in practice and in character so that it may live within us and our conscience may be founded upon it and rest in it is not in the art of man. Therefore, I say and admonish that those who wish to be Christians may always keep it in mind, assimilate it, practice it, and chastise themselves with it, that we may at least have a taste of it, as James says, one eighteen, be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. For we shall never advance so far in this life as to come to a perfect understanding of it, nor did even the blessed apostles, full of the spirit and of faith, advance so far. Thus far, I have explained the first part what Christian righteousness is and in what it consists. But if you ask further, whence it comes, or how has it been brought about or gained, I answer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come from heaven and has been made man, has suffered and died for our sins. This is the cause, the means, and the treasure through which we obtain the forgiveness of sin and for the sake of which the grace of God is bestowed upon us. For such a treasure does not come to us without means or merit. But since all of us are born in sin and are the enemies of God, we have deserved only eternal wrath and punishment. All that we are and have is condemned, and there is no help or way out of it. For sin is so grievous that no creature can quench it, the wrath so great that no man can appease and conciliate it. Therefore, another man must take our place, namely, Jesus Christ, God and man and through his suffering and death make satisfaction for our sins and pay for them. This is the price that has been set and has been expended for us, by which sin has been quenched and the wrath of God appeased. The Father has been reconciled and made our friend. Christians alone know this and believe it, and are in this respect different from those of every other faith and worship on earth. For the Jews, Turks, false Christians— And those who would be righteous by works also boast that God is merciful, and there is no man on earth but knows something of the grace of God. And yet all of them fail to obtain it. Or, in other words, they do not have the treasure in which it lies and from which it flows. They continue in their blindness and imagine they can acquire it by their works, rigid life and their own holiness, with which they only make the wrath and displeasure of God the more grievous. Therefore, it is necessary that we rightly learn to know this treasure, to seek forgiveness where it may be found. That is, that we thoroughly learn to know, comprehend, and keep the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is ordained that no one shall come into God's presence, find grace, nor obtain forgiveness of the least sin except through Christ. Because you are a sinner and will always remain one. Your conscience is ever-present condemns and threatens you with God's wrath and punishment, so that you cannot see the grace of God. With reference to the forgiveness of sins, let me say that you will not find anything in your heart with which you can pay them off, nor raise any funds for which God might recognize you and cancel the debt in the ledger. But if you seize Christ as the one who has become your substitute, who has taken your sin upon himself, and who has given himself with all his merit and worthiness for you, no sin can avail anything against you. If I am a sinner, he is holy and is Lord over sin, death, Satan, and hell, so that no sin can harm me because he has given me, he has been given me as my righteousness and salvation. Therefore we have indeed pure grace and forgiveness of all sins. But nowhere except in and through Christ alone and in him only it must be sought and obtained. Therefore, whoever will come before God with any kind of work that God shall recognize and regard as meritorious for obtaining grace will be disappointed and undeceived. Yea, instead of grace, he will heap wrath upon himself. Thus you see that all other ways and means are condemned as the doctrines of devils by which men are led and directed to their own works or to the holiness and merits of others, as, for example, of the saints who have led ascetic lives and followed the rules of their orders and have suffered and expiated a great deal, or as those who have have done, who have comforted people in the throes of death and have admonished them to suffer death willingly for their sins. Whoever dares to offer... "'anything else for sin or to atone for it himself "'does nothing else than deny the Lord Jesus Christ. "'Yea, disgrace him and slander him, "'as if the blood of Christ were of no more consequence "'than our repentance and satisfaction, "'or as if his blood were not sufficient "'to take away all the sins of the earth. "'Therefore, would you be freed from your sins?' Cease to seek works and satisfaction, and to bring them before God. But simply creep under the wings and into the bosom of Christ, as the one who has taken away your sins, and has laid them upon himself. Thus you need not chastise yourself with them, nor have anything to do with them. For he is the Lamb of God, says John 1.29, which taketh away the sin of the world. And Peter says, Acts 4.12, there is none none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The reason we are Christians is because we have Christ with all his merit and worthiness, not because of our efforts and works, which indeed make a St. Carthusius or a St. Francis or an Augustinian monk, an obedient servant, an extremist, as they are called. But such works can never make a Christian. Behold, this is the second part, which belongs to the sermon on this article. The third thought is how and by what means we may appropriate such righteousness so that we may receive the treasure acquired by Christ. Here also, we need to give heed that we take the right way and not make the mistake which certain heretics have made in times past and many erroneous minds still set forth who think that God ought to do something special with them. These imagine that God will deal separately with each one by some special internal light and mysterious revelation and give him the Holy Ghost as though there was no need of the written word or the external sermon. Consequently, we are to know that God has ordained that no one shall come to the knowledge of Christ nor obtain the forgiveness acquired by him nor receive the Holy Ghost without the use of external and public means. But God has embraced this treasure in the oral word or public ministry and will not perform his works in a corner or mysteriously in the heart, but will have it heralded and distributed openly among the people, even as Christ commands, Mark 16, 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel unto every creature, etc. He does this in order that we may know how and where to seek and expect his grace so that in all Christendom, There may be the same custom and order, and not every man follow his own mind and act according to his own notions and so deceive himself and others, which would certainly happen. As we cannot look into the heart of any man, each one might boast of having the Holy Ghost and set forth his own thoughts as divine revelation, which God has inspired and taught him in a special manner. As a result, no one would know whom or what to believe. Therefore, this part also, namely, The external word or preaching belongs to Christianity as a channel or means through which we obtain unto the forgiveness of sins or the righteousness of Christ, with which Christ reveals and offers us his grace or lays it into our bosom, and without which no one would ever come to a knowledge of this treasure. For whence should any man know, or in what man's heart would it ever come, that Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven for our sake, died for us, and rose from the dead, acquired the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and offers the same to us without publicly having it announced and preached. And although he acquired this treasure for us through his suffering and death, no one could obtain or receive it if Christ did not have it offered, presented, and applied. And all that he had done and suffered would be to no purpose, but would be like some great and precious treasure buried in the earth which no one could find or make use of. Therefore, I have always taught that the oral word must precede everything else, must be comprehended with the ears if the Holy Ghost is to enter the heart, who through the word enlightens it and works faith. Consequently, faith does not come except through the hearing and oral preaching of the gospel, in which it has its beginning growth and strength. For this reason, the word must not be despised but held in honor we must familiarize and acquaint ourselves with it and constantly practice it so that it never ceases to bear fruit, for it can never be understood and learned too well. Let every man beware of the shameless fellows who have no more respect for the word than if it were unnecessary for faith or of those who think they know it all, become tired of it, eventually fall from it and retain nothing of faith or of Christ. Behold, here you have all that belongs to this article of the righteousness of Christ. It consists in the forgiveness of sins, offered to us through Christ, and received by faith in and through the word, purely and simply, without any works on our part. Yet, I do not mean that Christians should not and must not do good works, but that they are not to be mingled and entwined in the doctrine of faith, and decorated with with the shameless delusion that they avail before God as righteousness whereby both the doctrine of works and of faith are besmirched and destroyed. For everything possible must be done to keep this article pure, unadulterated, and separate from all our doings. But after we have this righteousness by faith, works are to follow and continue here on earth so that there may be civil righteousness and that both be maintained each in its proper place but separate in their nature and efficacy. The former... Before God, in faith, over and above all works. The latter works in love to our neighbor. As we said plainly enough, above, and have always taught. Amen.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Special thanks to Brian Wolfmuller for narrating today's sermon. Brian Wolfmuller is a pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. and He's the author of A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World and other books. He's the co-host of The Table Talk radio podcast and has a number of other theological projects that all end up on his blog, wolfmuller.co. He and his wife, Carrie, live with their four children in round rock texas the li- links for that will be in our description feel free to click through
0: we open this episode with our five-star review from mountain badger if you would like to leave a review we encourage you to do so thank you this is troy and joel and this is revive Thoughts.